Our sermon text for this morning is John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 2. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The sermon's entitled, In the Beginning Was the Word. I'm going to go ahead and read, however, the whole prologue, 1 through 18. The whole first word or introduction to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's infallible Word? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the time of the reading and the preaching of your word, we do ask that you might bless it to the hearts of your people. Would you grant the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that we might receive your word by faith? Grant us that humility, that meekness, that we need to receive your word, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ anew, to know that he indeed is the word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. Would you make your word now an effectual means for the salvation of your elect people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John is one of four New Testament writings that we call Gospels, the others, of course, being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Its general purpose is to narrate the good news of the redemptive work which Jesus accomplished at His first coming. And in that way, it's the same as the other three Gospels. But in another way, it's quite unique. 
Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize the earthly life and servant form of the incarnate Son of God, John emphasizes His heavenly origin and eternal glory. In other words, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize the horizontal dimension of Christ's ministry, John emphasizes the vertical dimension of His ministry. Like the other Gospels, the church received the Gospel of John as the inspired Word of God from the time of its writing. The signature of God is quite clear throughout it. The human author, on the other hand, a man who refers to himself on five different occasions in the text as the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote anonymously. Nonetheless, his vocabulary and his style are virtually indistinguishable from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation, the last of which the Apostle John subscribed. The church has therefore consistently taught from its earliest days that the Apostle John wrote this gospel. Now, almost all commentators agree that John wrote sometime after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And most believe, given evidence from the early church fathers, that John wrote his gospel toward the end of his life, likely during the reign of Emperor Domitian, sometime between 81 and 96 A.D. Now, besides such early testimonies, we can also look at John's own stated purpose for his writing in order to approximate a date of his writing. John explicitly tells us in chapter 20 and verses 30 through 31 why he wrote, saying, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So John wrote his gospel in order to testify to the miraculous signs that Jesus performed during His public ministry, signs which we learn in chapter 2 and verse 11 were performed as a revelation of His own messianic glory. Other gospel authors record similar miraculous signs, but none of them focuses quite so much on connecting those signs with God's redemptive acts in Israel's history. Taking up various threads from that history, John skillfully weaves a tapestry to reveal the fact that it was all about Jesus from the beginning. And the centerpiece of the tapestry that he so masterfully weaves together is the special dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament, that of course was originally the Garden of Eden, and then subsequently the Tabernacle and temple. In the New Testament, it's the glorified Christ and all who are united to Him by faith. We see this emphasis in chapter 1 and verse 14 when the apostle says, the Word became flesh and dwelt. Or that Greek word there could also be translated tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. We also see it in chapter 2 and verse 19 when Jesus teaches that He is the new temple. You remember He says to the authorities at the temple, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then John tells us just afterward, the disciples didn't understand what He meant at the time, but later they understood He was referring to His own resurrection from the dead. And then later in chapter 4 and verse 21, 
he teaches that one of the glories of the new covenant is no longer being dependent on a particular location in order to approach the Lord God. He says to the Samaritan woman at the well, the hour is coming coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Again, notice the emphasis there on the special dwelling place of God. Whereas under the old covenant, worshipers approached God through earthly copies and provisional shadows like the tabernacle and the temple, in the new covenant, the incarnate Son of God has become the ultimate, the final, the consummate tabernacle and temple of His people. Ultimately, He is the way by which we approach God in worship. As He says in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Me. So given these particular emphases, particularly on the special dwelling place of God and the fulfillment of that special dwelling place in the incarnation of the Son of God, I believe, along with many reputable commentators, that John wrote to a primarily Jewish audience sometime well after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And thus, one of his main apologetic tasks is to demonstrate the way that Jesus fulfills everything that the old tabernacle and temple formerly revealed, administered, and anticipated. This is what he means, I think, in chapter 1 and verse 17 when he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, besides issues of genre, authorship, dating, and purpose, we should also consider the structure and themes of John's gospel before we jump into the text itself. It's been widely acknowledged that the book can be divided into four main sections. The first, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, where we see a prologue or first word, a kind of introduction. The second, chapter 1 and verse 19 through chapter 12 and verse 50, where we see a book of signs that John uh, organizes around seven particular miraculous signs that Jesus performs for the revelation of His messianic glory. The third section, chapter 13 and verse 1 to chapter 20 and verse 31, we see the, what's traditionally been called the book of the Passion, because John organizes that part of his gospel around the final week of the Lord Jesus in and around Jerusalem, leading up to his suffering or his passion at the cross for the sins of his people. And then in chapter four, or then fourth, uh, chapter 21 and verses 1 through 25, 25 we see an epilogue or a, or a kind of uh, last word. Uh, a conclusion. Now, besides these basic divisions, we also find seven I am statements in which Jesus identifies himself by way of metaphor using various events in Israel's history. Remember, he says, I am that bread that came down from heaven, referring back to the time of the Exodus when God sent manna from heaven to his people. We also see seven other absolute I am statements in which Jesus identifies himself with the divine name that God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. You remember that happened at the burning bush, the bush that burned but wasn't consumed. Almost all commentators agree that this is a picture of the self-sustaining life of God, that God has life in himself. So you see life in that image, but you also see light, light shining forth 
from that burning bush. What does John say in verses 3 and 5 of chapter 1? In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so in all these ways, John reveals that Christ, Christ, this man that walked the earth 2,000 years ago, is the one and only God who brings new life to those who were formerly dead in sin, thus fulfilling all that the Old Testament anticipated through its types and shadows. In our text for this morning, we'll look at the first two verses of John's prologue. And immediately, we see his focus on the vertical dimension, as I mentioned earlier, the vertical dimension of the Son's identity, namely His, namely his eternal relation of origin from the Father, which, as we'll see, has vital implications for the horizontal dimension of His public ministry. These are verses thick with the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. They teach us the basic distinction between the divine being, which is unified, and the divine persons, which are diverse. We'll divide our text for this morning into two sections. In the first, we'll focus upon the unity of the divine being, and then the second, we'll focus on the diversity of the divine persons. Let's begin with the unity of the divine being. Look again at verse 1. The text says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's introduction here is quite unique. Rather than beginning with the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry in His baptism at the River Jordan, like Mark, or with Jesus' nativity, like Matthew and Luke, John reaches back even further, all the way back into eternity. With the phrase, in the beginning, he draws his reader's attention back to the creation account at the beginning of the Torah, at the beginning of the Bible, at the beginning of the law that God gave to His people through Moses. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, notice where the word, the Hebrew word that's Elohim, which is translated in our English text as God, notice where that word God falls in the sentence. It immediately follows the prepositional phrase, in the beginning. Now, notice what follows the same phrase in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, John says, was the Word, or logos in the Greek. Now, this appears to be John's way of signaling something astounding. If the logos of John 1 is in the same position as the Elohim of Genesis chapter 1, then John is signaling to his readers that this Word is the same Creator God. What John is saying about the Word in John 1 is the same thing Moses is saying about God in Genesis chapter 1. Just as God had no beginning, but was simply there in the beginning. So the same is true for the one that John calls the Word. This is why John says at the end of the verse, the Word was God. The full deity of this one that's called the Word could not be more strongly stated 
than here. Contrary to the heretic Arius who arose within the church in the late third century and who taught there was about Jesus, who taught there was when he was not, there was when he was not, thus denying the Son's eternality and therefore his full deity with the Father. And contrary to those who followed after his teaching, like the modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, this text affirms with crystal clarity there was not when he was not. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. That is the one true and living God. Moving on now to the second section, we see the diversity of the divine persons. Now, while the God of Genesis and the Word of John are in one sense identical, they are also in another sense distinct. John continues saying, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God. And notice the historical context in which we're still situated. We're still in the beginning, that is, in eternity, before God's work of creation. In the beginning, there was nothing but the being of God. And that being was one. As Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as John 1, 1 says, the Word was God. But yet, but yet, there was also more than one. The Word was with God. Indeed, in his typical style, the Apostle John repeats what he's just said in verse 2 in order to make it crystal clear that he's still thinking about God's eternal being. Look again at verse 2. He says, He was in the beginning with God. So whoever this Word was, He was in the beginning, eternally. He did not begin to be after a prior work of creation, but before God's work of creation, in the beginning, the Word was with God. And notice the way John refers to this Word in verse 2 with the personal pronoun, He. Thus, he signals that this one he calls the Word is personal, like the God he both was and was with in the beginning. But who exactly is this Word, this Logos? Well, John uses the same Greek word later in verse 14 when he says, and the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He uses it once more in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 13, saying, He, that is the glorified Lord Jesus Christ, returning on the last day, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word, or Logos, of God. These are the only places in Holy Scripture that refer to the divine Logos or Word. And it's clear they're references to the only begotten Son from the Father who was sent into the world for our salvation. As John says, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we might rephrase John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 2 saying something like this. 
In the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, who was God, and the Son was also God with the Father. The Son was in the beginning with the Father. What we find in these verses is not only monotheism, and Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We not only see monotheism, the the oneness of God, according to His essence, His being, His nature, but we also see what we might call multi-processionalism. So not just monotheism, but multi-processionism. In other words, we not only see divine oneness, but divine fromness, that is, procession. We see this particularly in the two creaturely analogies that John appeals to in his prologue, that of a father to a son and that of an intellect to a word. So there's a father-son analogy, there's an intellect-word analogy. Within the creation, sons proceed or come from fathers, and words proceed or come from intellects. God uses these creaturely processions, these creaturely examples of fromness, as analogies to teach us something about His own divine being. In the procession of a son from a father, we not only see origination, the father is the originator and the son is the originated, but we also see a kind of consubstantiality. The father and the son share similar natures or substances. We might say something like this, following the early church fathers, Just as men beget men, so God begets God. And thus we see the basic structure of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Just as a son is not his father, but proceeds from his father, and yet shares a similar nature with his father, so by analogy the same is true for God. When the text speaks of the son in distinction from God, that is, He was with God. It's speaking of the Son's procession from the Father. And when it speaks of the Son as identical to God, He was God, it's speaking of the divine nature that the Son shares with the Father. But as with all analogies, the comparison eventually breaks down. For example, the creaturely procession of sons from fathers involves a distance between the two. The distance is seen in at least four ways, in terms of nature, space, time, and change. In terms of nature, while fathers and sons share similar natures, they do not share an identical nature. I am my own body and soul. I am my own human nature, distinct from my son. In terms of space, fathers occupy different spaces from their sons. I am here, my son is over there. In terms of time, fathers exist before their sons. I am older than my son. And in terms of change, 
Men become fathers when their sons are born. There was a time when I was not a father, and then my son was born, and I became a father. These are what we might call the vestiges or leftovers of creatureliness that must be stripped away from the analogy, from the creaturely procession, if we're to avoid misunderstanding what God has revealed about Himself through it. There can be no such distance, no such distance between God the Father and God the Son since they share the one infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being of God, much less any hierarchy of authority between them. Whatever the divine procession is, it cannot yield any distance whatsoever between the Father and the Son. This is why John refers to both the Father and the Son as the same God. They are identical in substance. As the church confesses in the Athanasian Creed, quote, the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. That creed goes on to say the same thing about God's immeasurableness, that is His infinity, His eternity, His almightiness, and His authority. Whatever can be said about the being of God is identically true of the three, such that there is absolutely no distance or distinction to be made on those points. What about the creaturely procession of a word from an intellect? We not only see the analogy of a procession from a, of a son from a father, but also a word from an intellect. Well, this is where the medieval theologians become very helpful to us. Just as a word proceeds from the intellect or pops into one's mind, and yet that procession, that fromness is spiritual, involving No perceivable distance in terms of nature, space, time, or change. So the Son's procession from the Father is similar. It is what we might call an imminent procession, meaning it exists or operates within the being of God and involves no distance from that being, no distance between the one who proceeds and the one from whom he proceeds. This is why we read in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 that the Son is the image of the invisible God. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, we read, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Just as a word is well-formed insofar as it accurately reflects the intellect, So the Son is the image of God, the exact imprint of the Father's nature. So what is the divine procession? And what does it teach us about the distinction between the Father and the Son? Well, the divine procession is purely relational. It is purely relational. More specifically, it has to do with relations of origin. 
That's what the names God and Word and Father and Son are meant to signify to us. How are sons related to fathers? Sons proceed from their fathers, or more precisely, sons are begotten by their fathers. Fathers are not begotten by their sons. How is a word related to the intellect? The word proceeds from the intellect. The intellect does not proceed from the word. And thus we see in these creaturely analogies, most fundamentally, relations of origin. The Father is God in the original, unbegotten and unproceeding. The Son, or Word, is God proceeding from or begotten from the Father. And we can take it out a step further. The Holy Spirit is God proceeding from or being spirated, being breathed out from the Father and the Son as a single originating principle. These Four, if you were counting there, these four opposing acts, namely begetting and being begotten, spirating and being spirated, which involve no actual movement or distance at all, are what theologians call notional or characteristic acts of God. They are the acts by which we understand the diversity of the divine persons. But even as we say such things as these, which we must say because the text demands that we say them, we do so with the utmost humility, recognizing that these are just faint creaturely analogies of the incomprehensible glory of our God. And thus we see in the names Father and Son a relation in which there is a procession in terms of begottenness and in which a common nature is shared. And we see in the names God and Word a relation in which that procession is further clarified as imminent, involving no distance at all between the originator and the originated. When we couple these truths together with the truth that God is one, we see the basic structure of the blessed doctrine of the Holy Trinity. We confess this same doctrine in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2 and paragraph 3. The text says, in the unity of the Godhead, in the unity of the Godhead. Now, that word Godhead doesn't mean three-headed monster like I've heard from various uh, Jehovah's Witnesses as I've interacted with them. They say, you believe in a three-headed monster God or something, the Godhead, this idea. So, no, that's not what that means. All that means is Godhood. It's an old English way of saying Godhood. It's referring to the nature of God, like manhood. So in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Beloved, in our text for this morning, we've taken a rather deep dive into the blessed doctrine of the Holy Trinity, and I give you credit that you're still awake. This is difficult stuff. But how, how might we apply this rather challenging doctrine to our lives? How might you apply this rather challenging doctrine to your life. Well, let me offer you at least 
four ways. First, first, and this was my experience when I was first taught the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. First, it should humble you to the dust. It should humble you to the dust. Early church father, St. Augustine, a man who wrote prolifically and masterfully on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, compared the study of God to peering down into a bottomless abyss. He said, the human eye may penetrate deeply, and some eyes may penetrate more deeply than others, but no creaturely eye can ever reach its bottom. Reformed theologian Herman Bovink taught something very similar, saying, quote, in truth, the knowledge that God has revealed of Himself in nature and Scripture far surpasses human imagination and understanding. In that sense, it is all mystery with which the science of dogmatics is concerned. For it does not deal with finite creatures, but from, the, from beginning to end looks past all creatures, what we did a moment ago, stripping away those creaturely vestiges, looks past all creatures and focuses on the eternal and infinite one himself. From the very start of its labors, it faces the incomprehensible one. Beloved, as you come face to face with this incomprehensible one, you ought to be humbled to the dust, marveling that He, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, who is one being and three persons, would stoop to reveal Himself to you. And not only to reveal Himself to you, but to bind Himself to you by way of covenant. And you ought to remember, while you may grow in your understanding of Him over time, as He, by His grace, assists you through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, through the working of His Word, through the the incarnation of the Son of God, As you grow in your understanding of Him over time, you should remember that you can never understand Him comprehensively. You can never understand Him comprehensively. In other words, you can never say to yourself, I've defined God. The doctrine of God is not really about defining God. It's about simply stating the proper truths that God has taught us to state about Him. And knowing when to stop talking. Because He's not revealed more of Himself to us. One of my favorite theologians from church history is the American Puritan Jonathan Edwards. He took this idea of the incomprehensibility of God and said, this is a wonderful thing for us creatures. Because when we enter into glory, the joy of that experience will be beholding the manifold glory of the triune God forever in the face of Jesus Christ. And because God is incomprehensible, guess what? There'll never be a moment where we go, you know, this is kind of boring. 
This is kind of, I already know all this. But they're always, and this is, this is very much like Edwards. I mean, if you think about his personality, there'll always be something new to learn about God. This is what Edwards thinks is the, you know, the glory of heaven, part of the glory of heaven. And I think he's right. Seeing that beatific vision and being satisfied and yet, and yet able to be further satisfied in some sense, as God reveals more and more of Himself to us for eternity. Second, second, how else might we apply a doctrine like this to our lives? Well, it should, it should strengthen your faith in Him. I think oftentimes when people encounter difficult doctrines like this, if they're not rooted in the faith, if perhaps they're, that, they're an example of that seed that fell on rocky soil… They might say to themselves, it's just too much, I'm done. It's too much, I'm done. But really, it ought to do just the opposite. It ought to strengthen our faith in the Lord our God because God is incomprehensible. You are utterly dependent upon His revelation of Himself to you, especially His revelation through His incarnate Son, which is the substance of the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. This is what John means in chapter 1 and verse 18 when he says... When he says, and think about this for a moment, Moses went up on the mountain and spoke to God as if, that's why those two words are so important, as if face to face. Show me your glory, God, Moses said. That's all I want. I want to see your glory. And God puts him in the cleft of the rock, passes by, and shows him his backside glory, the after effects of his glory. Even though all of that happened, John writes, after the coming of Christ, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God, that's the Word that proceeds from the Father, the Son that proceeds from the Father. The only begotten God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. How? Because He became flesh and dwelt among us. If you are to know God well, you must look by faith to His incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are to look by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, you must give yourself to the prayerful study of Holy Scripture, trusting the Spirit's illuminating work within the church. And remembering that He will meet you wherever you are. He will meet you wherever you are in your own development, in your own understanding of Him. He will meet you where you are so that you have communion with Him. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to have sweet communion with God. It's not necessary. God will meet you where you are. But praise be to God, He won't leave you where you are. But by His grace, He will grant you growth in understanding Him over time. As you look to Him by faith, as you trust Him, as you receive His Word with that meekness and humility which is required. Third, third, 
As you do that difficult but rewarding work of studying Holy Scripture, contemplating the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you will begin to see that the Trinitarian nature of God is the fountain of the gospel. Just as the Son eternally proceeds from the Father, so it was fitting that the Father would send, would send His Son into the world to accomplish your salvation. And just as the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, so it is fitting that the Father and the Son send the Spirit to apply salvation to you even now. Whether you know it or not, you are participating even now in the working of the Holy Trinity. The Spirit who proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son is at work in your heart if you're united to Christ by faith. The divine missions or redemptive works of God reveal His divine processions. We might say it this way, the temporal missions reveal the eternal processions. Just as the Father brought forth the old creation through the Son in the power of the Spirit, so the same Father has brought forth and is bringing forth a new creation through the Son in the power of the Spirit. This is one of St. Athanasius' arguments in his work on the Incarnation as he went to war, as it were, with the heretic Arius, whom I mentioned earlier. St. Athanasius said, St. Athanasius, pardon me, said, if the Son did not perform the work of creation with the Father and the Spirit in the beginning, in other words, if He is not fully God, as the Father is God, then He cannot perform the work of new creation with the Father and the Spirit in the end. The Father sent the Son and the Spirit for you, that you would be set free from sin's guilt, power, and presence, be reconciled to Him, and receive the covenant promise of eternal life, rising triumphant over death in the end. And nothing can stop Him from accomplishing that purpose, beloved. Hear me very very clearly. The same God that created you by the word of His power is bringing forth a new creation within you by the word of of His power. You have just as much chance of hindering your salvation as you do traveling back through time somehow to hinder your creation. But it turns out you were created from nothing. And so even if you were able to travel back, once you hit the line between eternity and time, you cease to exist. The same God that created you by the word of His power is bringing forth a new creation within you by the word of His power. Fourth, as you grow in your understanding of God and His great love and grace to a sinner like you, you ought to grow in your love and worship to Him. In the same way that husbands should want to know their wives and wives should want to know their husbands not for the sake of mere speculation, not treating, like, treating them like an object to be studied so that they might pass a test, but for the sake of loving and enjoying them more deeply. 
you should desire to know more and more of the God who created you and is redeeming you, that you might glorify and enjoy Him as your blessedness and reward forever. You know what God is doing as you study His Word in this life? He is fitting you for the glory that is to come on the last day. As you grow in your delight in Him, you're getting a little foretaste of that eternal delight that will be yours in the heavenly place. Remember, as you study Holy Scripture, remember as you dig deeply into the history and the theology of the church, and those are wonderful things to do, but be very careful, be very careful not to turn God into some object of study that's merely someone you speculate about. God is not merely an object of study. He is a personal being to be loved, to be glorified, to be worshipped. The very fact that you have the resources, meaning the special revelation of God and the Holy Spirit at work in your heart to illumine you that you might understand that special revelation in a saving way. The fact that you can even do that is a testimony to His great love to you. God has given not just heaven to you, not just escape from hell to you in the sending of His Son. He has given you those things. But He's given you Himself. He's given you Himself. And if you have Him, what else could you possibly need? What more could you possibly desire? If you have Him, you not only have everything you could possibly desire, but you have been given through Him the ability to enjoy those temporal gifts that He gives in this life, to enjoy them truly to His glory. This is what theology is meant to be about. It's not, a, it's not an academic exercise so much, although there's a place for the academy. It's about getting a fuller glimpse of the God who's given Himself to you in the sending of His Son and Spirit for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We give You praise, our Father, for the way you have revealed your triune nature in the sending of your Son and Spirit for our salvation. We thank you that we can call upon you using the name that Christ gave in the baptismal formula, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we give you praise that you've been pleased to reveal yourself to us not just simply that we might study you like an object, like a specimen, but that we might know you personally and walk with you 
and glorify and enjoy you forever. Father, we pray that you would take this word now and apply it to our hearts. Let it be that seed that falls in fertile soil and produces much fruit to your glory. We lift up before you our covenant children. We ask our Father that you would grant to them a true and lively faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They might take hold of the covenant promise that you have held out to them in their baptisms. We entrust them to you. Father, our desire is to know that they would know you and have sweet fellowship with you and walk with you, loving the Lord Jesus more than anything in the world. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.